Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air, welcome back to the podcast, stoked you're here. Huge episode today, I just, um, I just gotta let you know what it's been like for me to record this. Today I have a talk with an amazing person, Jason Gaddis, he's the founder of the Relationship School and he has recently written a book called Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High Stakes Relationships, and it was a really good talk. I knew that the talk would be good, but I was just in general kind of apprehensive to read his book, even though I bought it. Um, and my apprehension, I think, can be turned into inspiration here if I do it right. Essentially... To have to read a book about conflict resolution and high-stakes relationships is some kind of admission that I'm not perfect at working through conflict in my intimate relationships, in my familial relationships, in my partnerships, with my closest friends. And there is a bit of shame there. I like to think of myself as quite adept at conflict resolution, and to begin reading the book was for me to admit that that might not be true. I also just have a history of intimate relationships that have been incredibly fruitful, but all of which have ended. And that is a fact that is brought to painful awareness by dealing with this subject for me. It brings up that those relationships broke and ended and caused me enormous amounts of pain. And So, the way this turns into inspiration is that mm, it's okay. It's okay to be to have made mistakes. It's okay to have done harm. It's okay to have fucked it up. To have said shit you didn't mean. To have been totally triggered. To fly off the fucking handle. It's okay. You've got to forgive yourself first so that you can actually move forward. You have to forgive yourself so that you can admit that there is things yet to learn. And being alive with things to learn is where you want to be, as far as I can tell. Pretending that you have nothing to learn is being dead. And I have so much to learn in conflict resolution, and I have a lot to learn from this man, Jason Gaddis, and I'm so grateful for his time. We had a really good talk. It was very enlightening for me. I He illuminated a number of stories that I was running about myself. Um, through this conversation, I realized some patterns that have been playing out in my relationships that definitely aren't easy to look at and definitely the and definitely seeing them isn't easy to deal with or how to integrate that none of that is easy but it's totally worth it and it's very rewarding and it's healing and it leads to my growth and so in general I highly recommend his book and 
Um, it's really good, super helpful. Also, it was very validating because a lot of the ways, like I mentioned, that I thought of myself as quite adept at conflict resolution, I think a lot of that was confirmed. It was confirmed and it feels validating that at least, even if I'm not always perfect at it, that I know it's incredibly important and I'm, I have been and I am willing to put attention and emphasis and work into how I resolve conflicts with people, how I communicate and that's just a very helpful place to be with all of this. We talk a little bit about coaching and how helpful it is just to have people around you who see you, how important it is to have friendships of virtue, how important it is to have a paid therapist or coach on your side, um, which is amazing. I love that idea and I've recently started my own philosophical coaching practice I've been offering free intro calls lately of which I've had a number of really rewarding ones with people who have found me through this podcast so if you're listening to this now and you'd like to have a conversation um, go to my website airyintheair.com and you can see the coaching page has a scheduling link or you can email me at airyintheair at gmail.com also, if you're listening to this, I please, I highly encourage you to become a patron on Patreon. That is how this podcast keeps going for as little as $5 a month. That super helps. You can also do other meat suit actions like sharing it and reviewing it. Those kinds of little things, I think, help. Someone told me that they help. I haven't, they, they haven't increased my bank account or given me a shoulder massage, but I think that they help at some level. So, to give you a little, uh, just to paint a little picture for you so you know how this was for me, because I'm going to drop you into the beginning of the recording, and I've made it a habit lately to start my recording before a new guest shows up. If I'm doing a recurring, if I'm having a talk with a recurring guest, then I'll press record when I want to, but sometimes when I meet someone who I know that, um, or have intuition that we're really going to jam, I need to record immediately. And I'm going to play for you now just the entire recording that I made with Jason. And, which is really cool. I think that's a cool way to like, uh, to podcast uh, like that. Um, and like always, it's without editing, my pauses and my space and my breath and my thinking is all embedded in here. Yeah. So to paint this picture for you, though, Jason is a probably like a mid-40s handsome man with a salt and pepper beard and short hair. And he has a very soft and present gaze. And he's adorned with this really nice, like bright teal sweater, like turquoisey sweater. And he's got these really nice turquoise sterling silver rings on and this cool sterling silver bracelet. And so that's who I'm talking to. So without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my entire talk with Jason Gavis.
How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Nice to meet you. Yeah. What's your name, Ari? Ari. Ari. Awesome. Nice to meet you, Ari. Nice to meet you, Jason. Yeah. I've uh, been reading your book. Nice. What do you think? It's really good. <laughs> cool. <laughs> We're going to get into that. Nice. Great. But it seems like you and I actually have a lot of things in common. I'm a professional action sports athlete, started as a professional skier. Now I'm a highliner, paraglide pilot, mountain biker. Oh, right. I remember looking at your bio, dude. Yeah. You've got some legit, your weight. Like I, I talk about being an extreme athlete. You're actually an extreme athlete. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning of your book, you have a lot of things about your early relational life and how you dealt with your emotions in regards to conflict and how sports and being outside adventure, intense experiences were a part of your emotional metabolism yeah. or um, sometimes you refer to it as kind of a escape. Yeah. And um, that's something I've, experience. And it's actually, I also have a YouTube channel where I teach a lot of paragliding and particularly to men. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of us who find ourselves in extreme sports have used it as some way. It's almost a coping mechanism sometimes. And so I've basically told the viewers of my YouTube channel that I've paraglided for every single reason out there. (laughs) <laughs> I'll bet. The good ones and the bad ones. Yeah. Um, and it also seems that we have something in common that we uh, deeply value our relationships. And they're one of our most rewarding and most challenging parts of our lives. Yeah. You got it. Nice. And so I'd love to just roll right into this. Cool. So I'd love to hear from you. I'd almost just want to hear your version of like painting where our, as you call them, high stakes relationships, Mm -hmm. where they live in our current world. Because I think that culturally, the place where these relationships live in our lives and in our society changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so right now they live in a certain place and I would love to hear from you where you think that is. Yeah. Do you mean like where each of us place them? Is that what you mean? Could be. It could be. I think that we all place them in different, you know, we all have a a unique spot where they live in our lives. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think more generally, to give one example here, it seems like in the last 150 years, our intimate partnerships have actually grown in importance in our lives. Hmm. And that's due to all kinds of things. Um, 
But that's just one example where I kind of think that our, as you call them, high stakes relationships are kind of like they're moving and they're shifting. And I think that your book is relevant right now because amidst COVID, say, we've had an enormous disruption in how we relate to people. Yeah. And so there is a, there's like a current salience to our relationships. And I'm curious what you think that is. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me take a stab at it and see if, see where we go here. Okay. Yeah. I think our high stakes relationships, what I call like, it would be marriage, family, you know, business partnership. Those are kind of people we depend on for our life mm-hmm. and for our well being. Um, and you could say a climbing partner, I guess. Uh, but more, more, it's more like we, we depend on these people because there's so much value there, but they're the hardest relationship. So that's kind of where high stakes comes from. And in our lives, I think they, they've, with COVID especially, they've been pushed, uh, COVID's kind of pushed our issues to the surface mm-hmm. in those relationships. And they're testing us to see how well we're doing or not. And I think people are, are moving in two directions. They're either moving towards strength and security or they're moving towards insecurity and breaking up basically. Yeah. And I think, uh, the pressure on a high stakes relationships like a marriage right now is, uh, as Esther Perel talks about it can feel like a lot, like too much. We shouldn't go to our intimate relationship for everything. And, uh, I, I hear that and I disagree. I'm like, well, I want that. I want my marriage to be like the sanctuary, the safe harbor, the launching pad. And it is that. And um, she's my best friend. She's my lover. She's my confidant. She's so much more co-parent, co-pilot, you know, everything. And I love it that way, but it is harder to create that for sure. Do you think that, everyone needs it to be like that? I don't. Uh, I definitely don't think that because very few people actually have that. And I think it's because a lot of people just want to not be alone. Mm -hmm. And so they will settle for a partner who is maybe not treating them well or where they're not getting all of their needs met or or they're not there. It's just like, hey, I got married because that's what everyone else was doing and it seems fine and now we're just co-parents. But people aren't optimizing it, right? They, they just sort of are thinking, oh, this is as good as it gets. And, and a lot of them come from that sort of view comes from a family of origin, usually in your childhood, where that was as good as you got. Like connection was very distant in your family or connection was a lot of trauma or drama or fighting or whatever. And so people just think that's normal and they, don't, they actually don't know what's possible here. And so people settle. And I think most people are settling. Your background is as a psychologist, right? As a therapist. Yeah, psychotherapist. Um, yes. And then turned kind of relationship coach, entrepreneur type person. And so the idea that our family of origin would paint the pattern for us that would lead us to, as you say, settle, is that's not a new concept. Correct. 
So yeah, I'd love to, can, let's dive color. into that a little bit because the beginning of your book, you emphasize what you call the relational blueprint and mm -hmm. understanding where you come from is actually the best way for you to know how to deal with yourself and help other people understand how to deal with you as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Nice. Yeah. We're in a, let's say a, a marriage or an intimate relationship in the here and now today, and there's problems. And a person says, well, I don't remember my past. I, my childhood was fine. My parents were great. And that's, that's a very surface understanding of psychology and your history. Um, if we take the view that there is a relational, such a thing as a relational blueprint, we're suggesting that the current challenges you're having are partly a result of where you come from mm -hmm. and whatever template got laid down in your earliest years, particularly the first two years. So you're not going to be able to remember that um, of how you were treated and how your environment was and how you got your needs met um, with the big people. And strangely, and that, that we can get into the conversation around attachment, attachment styles and attachment science. But basically that sets the stage for how we're going to do it later on, particularly mm -hmm. conflict. And then of course, as a toddler and young child and then teenager, that first 18 years, all, all of that is, it's going in all day long. It's less about what the big people say and it's more about how they act, right? I want to double click on what you just said about our first two years, the things that we don't remember. You know, um, one of the numbers that I have stuck in my head that is essentially that your first six years. Um, but I'd love to double click and hear about this infant childhood development as it relates to our ability to resolve conflicts as adults. That's very interesting. Yeah, totally. I think so too. It's quite fascinating. So um, the time we don't remember is usually those first couple of years and, and they're according to attachment science, which is again, a body of research by attachment scientists who study the parent child bond um, in utero, as well as when you come out of the womb in those first couple of years. And um, what they notice when studying people and children and the mother, son, mother, daughter, mother, child, usually mother, Dynamic is however that relationship goes is going to be sort of how your relationships go later on. And if you grew up in a two-parent family, then you're getting another attachment download about how to do relationships from how that person does relationship with you. And then there's the third download of like how they do it with each other that you're watching every day. And most of us, uh, we're social mammals. So we don't like to not belong. We don't like to be on the outs in a dyad or in a group. And that's threatening to us. So we will do just about anything to maintain part of the family because it's survival when you're a young child. And then later on, it's, it's thrival. But um, we will betray ourselves, we'll compromise, we'll develop strategies and all kinds of things to fit in, to belong in our peer group as well as in our family. And all of this <laughs> uh, sets the stage again for how we're going to do it. Um, later in life, particularly in conflict under stress is we're going to go the default setting in the hard drive there is to go either usually withdraw or to pursue. And those are kind of the two fundamental energies in children and in humans is under stress in a relationship. We either move toward the person to talk about it or we move away from them. This is, it brings up for me this quote 
that it took me so long to let it sink in. And it was that our personalities are responses to our environment. Okay. I think that so many of us identify with our personalities as our selves. And so we set the stage to be very reluctant to bring it into focus, to pull it apart, to change it, to have mm -hmm. it called into question. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could just like ease that. Yeah, I can try. I think what I hear you getting at is it's sort of like we're not necessarily who we think we are, right? Mm -hmm. And um, on the surface, I might present to you that I'm, you know, let's say an athlete back in when my 20s, I'm an extreme athlete or I love extreme kind of sports. And that was the presentation that I would give to you, especially as a male, because I'm kind of competing with you and I'm, I'm also wanting to bond with you and let's do some bro time and let's go do our extreme thing. But little did you know, and little did I know that I'm actually a really sensitive, empathic being underneath the surface, right? And instead of going there and telling you about that or even being curious about it, anything that would reveal that or expose that in front of you, especially, I'm going to feel shame and embarrassment. So I'm, I'm going to not want to show you that. So I'm going to stay kind of protected in my, what you call a personality so that I don't reveal who I actually am because then you might reject me or make fun of me or judge me. So it seems like for me in looking back, hearing you say that, looking back, I really didn't start to be willing to look at it until I had some kind of shift around that. Mm -hmm. You just... I heard you essentially lay out why that is the case. Yeah. And I think that maybe an intellectual understanding of why that is the case in humans and why that's a human experience yeah. kind of takes the, takes the acute pain and just kind of allows us to see it as more of just a really widespread human experience. Yeah. That we don't very have to. Normal. Yeah. It's very normal. Yeah. And we don't have to take that personally. And we don't have right. to have shame around that. Yeah. Or make it wrong or. Yes. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is what's the relationship between the shame we have about how we are and our willingness to work on our relationships or ourselves. Okay. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about shame just for a minute to set that up. The shame is in my experience, shame is the experience of, I'm trying to be someone I'm not or comparing myself to a fantasy of someone I either want to be or think someone else thinks I should be or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel shame because I'm not that. I'm actually me. So as long as we're in comparison, we're going to be um, probably there's going to be some shame lurking around. Yeah. The way I've described it is guilt is a pain around something I've done and shame is pain around who I am, what I am. Yeah. And I would add what you are according to who, mm. because this is where like Brene Brown's work to me doesn't go far enough in terms of asking the question, okay, shame is I'm bad, but I'm bad according to who, right? 
what paradigm are we under? What context are we under? And I think that's a really important question because then you can, if you can identify what that is, then you can actually get at the shame and resolve it. I like that. That is a very, that's like a very enlightening layer that I've actually never pondered. And as my brain takes off in first gear on that, I'm just going to redirect back to this, back to this thing that is the, it's almost, I'm, I essentially what I want to do is I want to encourage people to loosen their grip on their personalities, to loosen the grip on the shame that by not knowing how to resolve conflicts in their high stakes relationships, by, by having problems emotionally, that by loosening their grip on that being so personal, that it changes the nature of it. It makes the, it makes it Mm -hmm. more light. It allows you to be more willing to do it. It makes it work to begin with. I think that, I, I mean, it seems like for you, you're in a unique position where people come to you already kind of like they've already maybe taken this step. They've already signed yeah. up. They've, they've found you at the relationship school. They bought your book. And so they've already, maybe they've already kind of broken this barrier down. But I think there's a lot of, like, I almost want to help you like create clients. There's like client creation that's, <laughs> that's left to be done here yeah. by, by helping people kind of set down the shame they have around how they are currently. Well, I, w- I would say, uh, you know, I can just talk about pain for a minute. Pain is a messenger, right? It's what brought me to my knees and had me look mm-hmm. at myself. And so if the listener, if something's not working in your life, whether it's your relationship with yourself or you're feeling kind of inept around interpersonal conflict with your partner, um, that's the place where you get jammed up the most. Um, the good news there is there's a massive growth opportunity if you'll turn toward that. And you are going to probably find some shame about how you've behaved or how you currently are behaving and how you shut down or blame or withdraw or whatever. Again, all this is very normal. And if you want to get empowered, you're going to have to dig a little deeper. You're going to have to go, hmm, why am I this way? And just that just that simple step of self-reflection and curiosity towards one's experience can be can open a very large door that a lot of people are scared to open because it feels like a Pandora's box. Like, well, I don't know what's in there and I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know what I'm gonna have to feel. And yeah, I hear you. And um, if you're listening to Ari's podcast, Ari's podcast here, you're probably fearless in a lot of places in your life. So certainly you can apply some of that fearlessness towards introspection and looking inward. Um, And I think it's the greatest adventure of all personally. I agree. What's on the far side of it? Fulfillment, um, self-mastery, self-acceptance better relationships, um, meaningful depth in connection. Um, yeah. Self-understanding and the capacity to be with other people and their pain and their humanness. Yeah. It's like opening the door to human experience at a depth and richness that won't happen before it. Yeah. I mean, unless you, uh, turn inward, it's going to be hard to get results relationally. Mm. Yeah, that's a big part of the beginning of your book here. And 
I've had just a very visceral experience reading this because mm. coming into it, I am a person who takes my relationships very seriously. I have gone out of my way to implement things like nonviolent communication in my relationships. And I, looking back, I came into this book with pride that I was, uh, that I was good at working through conflict in my relationships, but it's brought up my most recent relationship where conflict resolution broke us. Mm. And as I read your book, where you take so much personal ownership for the problems in your relationship, I went through this huge spiral of, did I, did I just run away? Did I, mm -hmm. was that all my fault? <laughs> and so like, I've kind of recognized an empathy gap in me, one that I'm like, I'm temporally disconnected from the emotions that I felt that led me to leave the relationship. Mm. I'm having a hard time like getting back to that. And I've had to go back to my journal and have read my read how I was feeling in those days when I made yeah. that decision. Yeah. And I've also kind of realized and I'm have, it, it's only happened in the last two days here. I've been reading your book for four days. Only the last couple of days I've realized that even though the person that I was with is just a wonderful person who has a commitment to introspection and to learning to be better in relationships and in conflict resolution, there was a mismatch in the styles of conflict resolution or mm -hmm. more to say that it's like the way that she expressed herself under stress and in conflict was so deeply triggering of seeing my parents fist fight. Mm. Right. That's intense. Yeah. And I actually didn't recognize that until I'm reading this and I'm reading the part about the relational blueprint that you just, you said it just recently, that was, it's this tertiary download of how my parents related to each other. Yeah. And so I've had to recently kind of just have sympathy for myself that, that it's okay that certain things and certain dynamics can overwhelm me. And I don't, I yeah. don't have to like kill myself trying to develop a conflict resolution style that feels like dying. It feels existentially threatening. It feels like I'm yeah. just like, it's so difficult. So I want to hear from you. It's almost like, the question is almost like, when does someone read this book? It's almost like, how do they know they're ready to read this book? Or another way to look at it is like, how do we know, and specifically in inter, like in intimate partnerships, because we're, we don't get mm -hmm. to choose our family. Yeah. So in intimate partnerships, how do we know there's a capacity how do we know that there's a compatibility that is the foundation for this kind of work okay i heard a couple of questions in there and i if it's okay i just want to comment on your 
vulnerable share there because that was powerful. Um, I just, I love hearing when men in particular are willing to self-reflect and take responsibility and also kind of bump up against like the conditioning is kind of what I heard, mm. which is like, is it okay to be like this sensitive? Is it okay that I have a, um, a shorter bandwidth for, you know, excessive emotional expression or whatever, uh, or tone of voice that's aggressive, like, aggressive, yeah, expression. aggressive. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think all of us have to know ourselves there and what works for us and what doesn't. Mm. Um, and to be men and to like one of the worst things that in our culture that you could admit is to be like a sensitive man. There's so much judgment, right? And there's self-judgment about that. And there's judgment from sort of the man code, boy code that's out there of how men should be strong. And anyway, it's just, it's important to, to say, look, um, I think all of us are sensitive. We're, we're sensitive in the ways that we are, however that is. And each of us has comes from a unique background. And, and this is the beauty of partnership is we get to know what kind of animal we're with, what kind of mammal what is this creature made of? What triggers them? What are they, what are they like under pressure? What are they like when I get aggressive? What are they like when I'm distant? What are they, you know, what happens to them and what happens to me? And that's is the power of partnership is we can, we can go there and we can learn about each other, discuss it openly, not make anyone wrong and not make ourselves wrong. And then find a way to, to navigate those waters. And sometimes it's not a fit and that's okay too. Right. So I just wanted to say that, um, and then coming back to your, um, your other sort of question, how does someone know really when they're ready? And I, I think, look, if for the listener, it's like, here's the question. Do you have an unresolved issue or some tension with someone in your life, past or present? And if you do, most people say, yes, I do. Cause people are difficult and you're difficult sometimes. So if you say, yeah, I do, then it's the question of how high of a stake is it if this doesn't get resolved? Like how big are the, how high are the stakes if this um, doesn't get resolved? Or, or is it going to actually cost you some things in your life? Are you, because that'll dictate how motivated you are to change it and to learn about yourself. And then this book is a great fit for you if you're a yes. I, I want to, actually, I want to get back to a better place with this person. I'd like to get to a better place with myself. Um, maybe you're judging yourself. This book can absolutely help. And um, because, you know, the first thing you're going to look at in the book is you. Like the book's not about how to change other people, <laughs> which is what most people try to do in conflict. <laughs> how do I get this person to be different? And this book is all about how do you be different? Mm -hmm. Not be different as in you're flawed uh, as you are, but more like how do I build the capacity and the skill to navigate relationships when they're stressful as hell. How do I do that? I appreciate that a lot. And I think that I want to shift slightly here. Yeah. I have had 15 years of intimate monogamous partnerships that have recently ended through my own decision. And if I were to put some words to the 
if I were to distill it and put words to it, it's essentially that my relationships are too high stakes. I need to like lower the stakes <laughs> okay. of my relationships. And I, I think that my past, my upbringing, my life has led me to have wounds of acceptance and abandonment and of rejection. And I have sought solace in my intimate partnerships. And I think I've kind of acknowledged that I've done that to a fault. Good. One of the books I've read recently is The Eden Project by James Hollis. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah. And it's very elucidating as to the ways in which I just project my own existential angst and fear on my intimate partnerships. So lately I've been kind of working with trying to just lower the stakes of my relationships. And you described early on what you mean by high stakes. So I'd love for you to draw the bullseye for me where our relationships are healthily high stakes mm -hmm. and when they're when the stakes are too high and i ought come back into myself to bring the stakes down okay well i think just to label something as the stakes are too high to me implies a judgment about it mm -hmm. um so i'm over here asking myself in this moment out loud, like, is there such a thing as too high of a stake? Um, usually where that's coming from in, in someone, and you could tell me if this is true for you or, or not, but is maybe a self-judgment around being um, too, putting too much emphasis on the relationship uh, and putting too much investment in it, too much dependence, too much something on it. Is that I think so, yes. I would say that there certainly is a self-judgment in there. And I think I, you know, to put it cartoonishly, it is that I'm like a, that I'm, that I'm codependent, mm -hmm. right? There's like some shame of enmeshment or, or like how much I need a partner. Yeah. Um, as I've worked through that, I've come to terms with the fact that I am a very deep relater. I'm yeah. a very sensitive, very deep thinker, deep feeler, and an incredibly deep relater. Mm -hmm. I'm getting that. And so... This is your inquiry here is something that I'm trying to parse out. When I say the stakes are too high, the line for me, I could describe it essentially as the difference between my true self that really wants to deeply relate mm -hmm. and my wounded psychology that would lead me towards enmeshment, that would lead mm -hmm. me towards codependence. Yeah. And so I'm trying to cut away the untruth of 
enmeshment and neediness, clinging. And I'm trying to find where my relationships are healthily high stakes. Yeah, where you're sovereign exactly. in yourself sovereign and getting the connection you want, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, I think I, I, I'm hearing what you're getting out there. Yeah. And, and I have codependent ish tendencies as well, given that I'm a therapist and a coach and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, my default setting is to help someone else before myself, mm -hmm. particularly relationally. Um, and I've had to work with that, uh, a lot over the years. And what if it was possible to be as you are and be in a relationship, be as quote needy or sensitive or whatever, as you are and be in a functioning relationship. And because I'm a sensitive motherfucker, man, I am very sensitive man. And I've come to really appreciate that about myself mm. and it serves my relationship with my wife. It serves my parenting as a dad to my kids. And I really like that. And sometimes um, I have more outward need you could express, or you could say toward my wife than she has toward me. And this is really normal in relationships where one partner looks like the needy one, but what's all that's going on there is an attachment style. Both partners are equally as needy mm -hmm. um, in my experience. And this is studied also in attachment science. Um, and no one's like needier than the other partner. It's just that one partner seems to be the spokesperson and given their history tends to lead like a repair. If we're in a conflict, it's like, I get anxious when the other person's going away. Right. And so I initiate like, Hey, I want to get back to a good place. This doesn't feel good. And that's, that's a, an asset in a relationship. That's that helps make the, cause the distant partner doesn't think this way. They're like, fuck, I just need space. I just need to get away from this person. And they, they judge the person as too needy or too much or whatever. But if the two people can find a way to figure out how to work with these two energies of someone is kind of anxious and moving toward and someone is like um, not emotional and moving away, these two people, that's, that's actually a perfect fit. Mm. It's just how do you work with it? Of course, if we're talking about violence and shit like that in the mix, no, I'm not talking about that, um, right? It has to be within a range where like the window of tolerance, for example, where I don't get blown out so far out of the window that I can't actually, it just stops for serving our relationship. That's yeah. usually we need trauma work and we need to take a break and there's lots of stuff we might need there, but just the general energies of, of someone wanting more connection, being a deeper later than the other person is not, is not, you know, fundamentally a problem. Hmm. That's a very validating response from you. Thank you. And I love the emphasis there on knowing yourself as you are. I th think that that seems to be an absolutely foundational part of relating to begin with. So an adjacent question is essentially something along the lines of individuation and the healthiest level of individuation to 
come into deep relationship with. I think that just hearing your last response, I think I put a expectation on myself that I would be completely individuated and actualized before I come into partnership. Right. And it's my right. own <laughs> failings of individuation and actualization. My, my, it is my neediness that breaks the relationship to begin with. Right. Yeah. This, this is the problem with like Jungian psychology or any kind of spiritual psychology or relational psychology pre neuroscience and attachment science. Um, because it, it, the assertion here is, yeah, you need to be a fully sovereign human being before you enter a relationship. And this is why I think it's such bullshit that people teach and preach, dude, you got to love yourself and then you got to go enter a relationship. No, you learn to love yourself through relationship. How do you think children come to embrace who they are? It's through mom and dad's acceptance mm -hmm. that they actually begin to accept themselves. So, um, it's, it's an upgraded view given what we know about the nervous system now that we can, um, it's a both end. We can continue to, and, and I would call it differentiation is more accurate than individuation because that's more of a Jungian term. Differentiation is the ability to have oneself and be myself and be in connection with you, which is kind of like what we all want is we want to be who we are. We don't actually want to compromise who we are in our integrity to get love, right? Yeah. We want to be ourselves and get what we want relationally. Well, that requires a fair amount of differentiation. It just means when you get upset or when there's a conflict, I know what's mine and I know what's yours. And I can start mm -hmm. to tease out where this comes from and why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. And I start to feel this capacity to be there for myself because you're not always going to be there for me. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that like in my own marriage, that's true that I need to just have my own ass sometimes because my wife's just yeah. pissed or she's not available. Yeah. And and she can also be there for me when I'm in a really down moment in a really hurting place. And so again, it's both. And this requires both partners be fairly differentiated. But again, you don't have to be differentiated to get into relationship. That's the work of relationships. How do I continue to find myself inside of this relationship? Because some of us do kind of get enmeshed. We get kind of, we merge with the other person. And that's a two-way street. It's not just one person doing that. Um, so it's, it's why I see relationship as a spiritual path. It's because I get to like answer this kind of lifelong koan of like, who am I in relationship? I think that's really beautiful. I love that. And you definitely illuminate some of the assumptions that I make about myself, some of the advice that I've gotten from my friends at the end of my marriage that was that I needed to be single for prescribed set time <laughs> set time you know some yeah. Yeah. something mm. and then the idea that union psychology got a big upgrade with attachment science is also a really interesting concept because i have um i have felt myself in exile self-induced mm -hmm. relationally at times. Yeah. Um, it's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible totally. feeling. Right. And so I think knowing myself and self-acceptance is more important than a self-induced expectation of 
individuation. Yeah, that you have to be at a certain place on your own two feet or whatever before relationship happens. It's again, the most powerful thing is the work happens inside of relationships yeah. with two willing partners, of course. Mm -hmm. But I do want to go back to something that you just quickly said, which was the idea of having your own ass. Yeah. Because I think in relationship, I've found that I will, in the past, I will self-betray, that mm -hmm. I'll, that I would, that I had a fucked up image of what love and relationship actually was because I expect myself to compromise or sacrifice yeah. to serve the other person. And I had this idea of myself as a servant in relationship that was unhealthy. Yeah. So there's like, yep. I, and I'm teasing this out from all these different angles and you're just really lighting it up on all of these different uh, versions. And I am having my own um, conceptions illuminated here. It, it's working. And so the idea that my intuition is that by having your own ass allows you to really be in the relationship and affects how you show up in conflict very profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. So what is having your own ass? What is having your own back? How does it relate to how we show up in relationship and in conflict? And almost like, how can we show up for ourselves? Yeah. Right. So in the book, I talk about, um, there's four relational needs, um, feeling safe, seen, soothed, and supported and challenged. These are kind of the four S's that come from Dan Siegel that I modified. Dan Siegel meaning uh, this attachment scientist guy. And um, if I can give that to myself, like I, if I know myself, if I see myself, I'm emotionally there for myself when I'm upset and I'm not farming all of that out to another person, right? That's having myself. I can soothe myself when I'm upset. I can see myself clearly. And when I can't, I have therapists, coaches, and friends who will reflect me, the essence of me back, not my bullshit, but my essence. Then I can keep knowing myself. This is huge. Mm. So then when conflict happens with you, let's say, and you and I are in a relationship, I know where I stand and I know what's not working for me and I know what is working for me. And I'm also not, I'm no longer willing to be in a relationship where I'm just giving to you and you're not giving to me. That's mm. a non-reciprocal, more codependent relationship. A mutual relationship is where we both give these needs and offer them to each other. And not all the time because I'm going to fall down. I'm not going to be able to see you always because I'm going to be triggered by you. I can't always soothe you because you're the one that triggered me. Um, I can't support you sometimes because I, I just can't totally get behind your choices of drinking six nights a week or, or whatever. But the commitment is there. And in general, 80% of the time, I'm like totally showing up for you, right? And that comes from an ability to show up for me. And then when you don't show up for me, it's going to start to feel shitty. And I'm going to start to resent you uh, because I'm not getting my needs met over here. And I'm going to stand up for those. And I'm going to not I'm going to bust out of this paradigm that I give to you, but you don't give to me. Like, no, um, it's a two-way street here. We give to each other. We offer these to each other. So it's this, again, this both end of, I'm going to have my own back. 
I'm going to see myself, et cetera, but I'm going to also do my best to see you. And I'm, I'm constantly doing this throughout the course and life of a relationship. I like this, the four S's that you've, that Dan Siegel put forward here and that you've modified. And it's really super obvious to me. I'm, par I'm constantly parenting in this neighborhood that I live in. Yeah, And so that seems just so congruent with how I see like healthy parenting happening and having solid attachment with these children and allowing them to feel secure. Yeah. I want to double click on one part of that and that's being seen. I find myself to be such a keen observer mm -hmm. like as a paraglide pilot. Like I'm really good at like, like there is wow. a bird that's 500 meters away and he's rising. And I like what I can discern about the atmosphere from that one thing <laughs> is like, it's like, that's cool. there's, there's things. Yeah. So I'm very observant and I can track threads over long periods of time. I'm really good at that. I found that, and, and what I want to zoom in on here on is what you just mentioned, which is having your own back involves being able to self-soothe, see yourself, support yourself. What's the fourth one? And feel emotionally safe with yourself. Yes. And feel emotionally like safe, safe to with be yes. with your emotions and express them. Okay, great. So I want to zoom in on this part here, which is being able to see yourself because in like, literally it was two days ago, I just had to have a conversation with my best friend who's a psychologist. I was like, am I like crazy? Like, yeah. Like it was regarding this empathy gap. I'm like, I cannot like see myself right now. Like, I'm just like, like, yeah. I, it's almost like yeah. I'm gaslighting myself through my own memory. <laughs> okay. uh -huh. And so I want to zoom in on this, like seeing ourselves. And you mentioned that part of seeing ourselves is relying on other people that we're very close to. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I, um, when I first started working on myself, I found amazing mentors. Somehow my intuition or soul or something guided me to incredible people that could see through my strategy into like who I actually was because mm -hmm. I had to start peeling apart this strategy because it was starting to get in the way, even as I started therapy as a client. Um, and then I joined a men's group and I was in a men's group, you know, every other week for two, uh, six years. Uh, on Tuesday nights and with about 12 guys and these guys knew me really well and they they started to see me and call bullshit on me and they started to figure out who was the real me and then as I started to figure out who this was the real me and then I got involved with my wife um, and then she started to, the same thing like I can't hide from her right and that's it's hard to like just constantly hide which is why intimate relationships are so fucking awesome is because we can't hide and they're very exposing and messy. And that's the good news so that we can learn to love ourselves and another person. Um, but through all of that process and lots of therapy and coaching and just mentorship over the years, and I'm still in a men's group, same, um, same one guy and two other guys. So we're, we're four and we've been meeting for fuck, years now, maybe 10 years. And um, they see me, right? Mm -hmm. And they see, they know when I'm full of shit. Like we have a... Um, you know, there's, there's a guy who was going through a hard time a while back and 
he doesn't see himself because he's so deep in his pattern. Like when we're in our patterns, it's when we can't really see clearly. So we had to be the mirrors, right? And hold, hold the mirrors up to him. And these guys have all done that for me. Um, there's something really powerful about that because no matter how much we claim we know ourselves, we have blind spots, right? And they're particularly acute in our biggest patterned areas that we struggle with. There's another reason why isolating is kind of a bummer. Mm. Why is that? Uh, because you don't have any mirrors. Yeah. You're just inside your own head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's not a lot of clarity there. Right. I love this idea that to have this secure attachment, even with ourselves requires deep relationships with other people. One of the, the first question I asked you was where do our high stakes relationships live in 2021? One of the things I would say about that is that we live in an extremely atomized, hyper-individualistic society. That is like the, totally. that is like the war drum. Yeah. That is the fucking war drum around here. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still, it, so it what really we're founded is. upon, right? In, in the yeah, US, it's like, this it is, is how we roll. So I guess I want to hear what you think about the role of, like you say, men's groups, but deep friendships, yeah, family support. What's the, like, what's the, because I, I don't think that we can just, read a book about conflict resolution and go through our lives as atomized individuals and be in these, you know, one to three to five high stakes relationships and show up really well without like a whole support system of people and experiences behind us. So I want to yeah. kind of, that's yeah. like almost an invisible part that kind of like holds up your mm -hmm. book that I want to like put some light on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I worked as a psychotherapist for years and people would come to me with their kind of relationship problem in a silo, in isolation, and they would go back and they wouldn't talk to anyone about their real problems mm -hmm. until next week with me. And I was like, wait a minute, this is fucked up. Like, I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't support this. Here's your homework. Go do this with another person. Go tell them this about yourself. And people kind of stopped doing it or, or wouldn't do it. And I was like, all right, I got to create a different system, which is why I started the relationship school. And I was just leading a class with 50 people today who are all on this nine month journey to take the relationship class they never took in school. And it's, and the reason I designed it this way is because it's in community. Yeah. It's like, you're going to have to face your shit here and do partner calls with other humans and get out of your fucking silo. Uh, because it's a relationship class. <laughs> it's like, let's learn in relationship with other people and bump up against these people that trigger us and inspire us and, you know, activate our nervous system in all kinds of ways. And let's work with that as practice. It's just practice. So that like getting our reps in so that when we go home to our marriage or our children or our business or whatever we go to, that we are more adept, we're more agile and we can actually hang 
because we're doing reps outside of that with other humans. So I think it's very essential that we have a little pit crew or even a best friend and maybe a therapist or a coach in our corner. If that's all we can do, great. It's a good place to start. Paid, unpaid, all of it, right? I always have a coach or paid therapist or a coach, someone in my corner, you know, yeah. uh, it's just always true. And then I've got deep friends and a wife and, you know, it's, it's pretty key. I agree. And I've just actually started my own philosophical coaching practice and the impetus of having the courage to actually start that was having an experience in a community accountability course that I took. That was the first yeah. time I'd ever done that. Yeah. And I was like, just dumbfounded, just the first day of it. Just, I had this profound epiphany that I had been trying to do it alone for so fucking <laughs> right. long. Exactly. <laughs> nice. That's and awesome. so I've started to do these coaching calls with people. And I just realized that so many of us have fallen prey to this narrative that we all have to be these atomized individuals who have our own yeah. careers and make our own money and we're emotionally sovereign and we're individuated and we're just like, just yeah. fill in the blank after the blank yeah. after the blank. Yeah. And no wonder we're so ashamed. <laughs> no wonder. Because <laughs> we're all falling short of those crazy ideals. Yeah, totally. So it's essentially the way that I describe it and my friends, Peter Lindbergh, describes it is friendships of virtue and a, a friendship is one thing. Um, but a friendship of virtue is specifically a friendship where I desire to show up virtuously in front of you. And I want you to do the same for me. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of friendship that Sometimes, like in this world right now, sometimes we look, we, we kind of know it as therapist or paid coach. Yeah. Because it's a person who endeavors to really see us, to listen to us really deeply, and to speak what we think is true. Mm -hmm. It is not a yes man. So I think that in regards to relationships, one of the pitfalls that I've seen is when you have friends who will just yes man you. Totally. Yep. I experienced it in my marriage where my ex-wife had friends who really despised me hmm. and they would go out drinking together and that would make me so uncomfortable. Yeah. That would make me so uncomfortable. And I didn't realize exactly why until later. And I know now that that's like something I'm just like, that's just so in my past. So I'm grateful that I just know that that kind of shit is so in my past. Yeah. But, but I, I guess I want to hear the, there is a qualitative distinction that I make in the quality of friendships and how they can support you in relationship. And mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about that particular aspect. Yeah, I love it. Um, I think a lot of people confuse love with support only. Mm. And I define love as challenge and support. 
So I want loving friends who challenge me and support me, right? To face my fears, face my bullshit, face my blocks. The first question, if I'm struggling in my marriage and I go to my friends, the first question I always have is help me see my side. And then they're always just like, they just bust out the sword and they're just like, yeah. And, and when you say, help me see my side, it's not help me see my, like, help me see my side of it. Like, I want you to see my side of this. Yeah. Take my side. It's not take my side. It's not take my side. It's help me see my part of this. Help me see how I'm fucking this up. Exactly. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well said. Um, that's friends I want in my life. And my wife is the same. She challenges the shit out of me. She supports the shit out of me. That's love. Um, contrary to popular belief, love is not enabling people, over-supporting them, believing their bullshit stories, um, you know, just agreeing with them when they hate people and they're gossiping. It's like, mm-hmm. hold on a second here. What's your part? Like, that's who we want in our lives uh, if we're going to grow relationally. Love that. And like you say, it's support and challenge. So I feel like you just illuminated the one side of the pendulum that is a unchallenged supporting relationship. Now I'd like for you to shine light on the other side that is the purely challenging, unsupportive type. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. There's also that, right? Is someone who challenges you all the time and doesn't support you, Mm -hmm. which those are typically... Um, more abusive, aggressive, um, harsh relationships. Um, if any of us grew up with a critical parent that where we felt completely undersupported um, and overchallenged, not because they were triggering us, but because they literally were asking us to do things that were not cool and way beyond our edge. And so we're going to dissociate, shut down. We're going to develop coping strategies to survive. So when you're in over an over challenging situation that's under supported, you're probably going to burn out or blow out or, um, you know, it's, it's not good. Yeah. So we're not talking about that. Yeah. Balance. Yeah. Love is a balance balance of both challenge and support. Okay. So there's this other aspect of relationships that I just find so critically important that we've alluded to in a number of ways, but we typically overlook it in our society. And it is the overview of our relationships as a network. We tend to, at least cognitively, isolate our relationships. And I have come to experience my relationships as all deeply interconnected Mm -hmm. in my little neighborhood here. The there's, there's almost this like high level type of relationship where we actually are by being in relationship and in community together, we're deeply supporting one another's relationships. So What are your thoughts on our perception of where our relationships live and particularly in regards to isolation and how we can foster our relationships to live in community? Mm -hmm. Well, I think most of us are underutilizing relationships for sure. All of us have, or I'd say most of us have friends 
And most of us have, in a way, kind of too many friends because of social media now. And so we're not going very deep with anyone. And I'm a big fan of just having a couple friends and going really deep with those and kind of not being, I'm more kind of antisocial these days and introverted. Um, but whatever, we all get to choose. But I, I think we want to utilize relationship because it's it's um, well-researched now that the, our quality of life goes up big time and we have more resources and we feel more supported to face all the other challenges that are not relational in our life um, that all of us are dealing with these days and, and all the stress we're all dealing with. So if we can get our closest relationships, what I call our high stakes, to be the strongest anchors for us, then we're going to be able to face, you know, what we, what we need to face in our life. And community is tricky because, um, I've been a part of a lot of spiritual communities over many years and most of them are very dysfunctional. And then I, I've started looking back, I've come to realize like all communities are dysfunctional. They're functional and they're dysfunctional. They're both. And can we take a more relationally sensitive framework and put it on our communities I think that would be pretty cool, but everybody in the community has to subscribe to that and not everybody wants to in a community. Um, so whether it's a yoga community, whether it's a community like you're living in where you are or the relationship school community, it doesn't matter. Like we all have issues. We're all going to like, there's no utopia where everything is perfect all the time. I think we have to be careful about that kind of fantasy because I think we're going to be let down every single time. We have to be in reality, which is people are difficult they're difficult to live with. Anyone who's tried community living is for a long period of time, like, okay, this is fucking hard. Yeah. I mean, a marriage is hard. Living with another one person in a life partnership is hard. Um, <laughs> growing up in your family was probably hard. Like, it's not easy. Uh, but if we have a, a framework like being relationally sensitive and a few kind of basic principles from my book or someone else's book or that we all are like, yeah, this, let's do this. Let's, let's commit to we get back to a good place when there's conflict, we repair things when, when we upset each other. I mean, just that alone would, would change a community for the better. That's so beautiful. And I totally agree. Uh, what you said about uh, underutilizing relationships and when our relationships are really sound and they're really secure, they can be the launching pad. They can be the base camp for yeah. us to endeavor. That is the story of my life, man. I was married when I was 21 and I was married for a decade. I became a professional athlete in three sports. It was like, I was just like, I had a safe home and yeah. I had a great wife and a dog. And I had lived in the same place for nine years. And I just fucking went so hard went outside. For it. Right. I went so hard outside. Yeah. Um, so I can really, I really resonate with that to, to finish up here. I would love to just, uh, there's one thing that has really changed my life that you have a funny little acronym for in your book. Mm -hmm. And it's such a practical piece of advice and it's so incredibly useful. It's transformational in our relationships and it's transformed mine. I got it from Marshall Rosenberg in nonviolent communication. Yeah. And you use the acronym LUFU. Yeah. LUFU. L-U-F-U. L-U-F-U. So tell us what LUFU is. Yeah. So LUFU is the tool I teach in all my courses. And I, it comes from me being really dense with my wife for <laughs> a number of years where she would say, we'd be in a fight and she'd say, you're not understanding me. And I'd say, yes, I am. <laughs> yes. Uh, over and over. And seriously, this went on for years. And I was like, Jesus, mm -hmm. dude. Um, 
it was actually creating more pain in our relationship. And I finally, I just changed the game. I was like, okay, I'm going to change the rules of this game. I'm going to put the onus on her to feel understood. And I'm going to say, I'm going to set up a rule for myself, which is, I don't understand you, honey, unless you tell me you feel understood. So it's actually not up to me. It's up to you. Um, and I'm going to make, if you say, yes, I feel understood, then I have a victory over here and I got it. And if you say no, then I'm going to keep trying. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm, I'm just going to stay in it until you say the words, I feel understood. And so now I, I yeah. just want to, I just want to bookmark and say, and you said you were going to change the rules of the game. I think that we both know at this point that you were just misunderstanding the rules the whole time before that, because that <laughs> totally. was always the, yeah. that's always been the rule with like, yeah. that you understand like someone it. that doesn't yeah. actually happen until they feel understood. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So I teach this now in all our courses and, and through it in the book because it's so valuable because people, I mean, this is like one of the tools that I teach in our course that changes people's lives forever because people become a better listener permanently for mm -hmm. life. And it's, mm -hmm. it's that big of a deal. Yeah. And can we just go into the mechanics of this just slightly uh, in nonviolent communication? The mechanics of this are reflection. So you tell me something, you share with me something, and mm -hmm. I say, can I reflect back to you what I've heard? Yeah. And if I don't ask that question, it's, I think I heard you say, or what I heard is. Yep. This is so, it, it's incredibly powerful. And Rosenberg talks about the healing power of empathy, where just by feeling heard, so much of our pain is alleviated. Oh my God, that moves mountains. Yeah. It moves mountains. And so one of my intuitions in relationship is that we all too often go to problem solving before we really just understand. And when we yeah. can really understand, the problem evaporates on its own. Yeah, especially us guys, like a lot of men or um, left-brained people want to problem solve and fix it because they are uncomfortable with the emotional upset, me included. And um, most people just want to be understood. They don't want to be fixed, rescued, challenged, you know, I have a metaphor for, for it, fracking, which is like fix, rescue, um, giving advice and all that stuff. It's just not that useful in, in a high conflict situation. Yeah, understand someone, that's, that's a much bigger mover. Yeah, it is. I love it. It's a great book. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time today. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, man. Thanks, Ari. It's been fun. I appreciate your your depth and your insightful questions and your genuine, just deep interest in relationships. Mm, thank you. We'll see you later. Okay, everyone. I hope that that was as helpful for you as it was for me. That was a very clarifying conversation and illuminated a lot of different things in me that I'm still having to shake out. I'm still having to deal with learning about my own shame cycles and expecting myself to be outside of relationship and all of these various things that I'm trying to juggle. And I just want to remind you something that 
I have been really reminded of in my life lately is that self-knowledge takes time. I'm literally like learning about myself like I'm my own friend. Like it just takes time and through years and years of paying attention to myself, I just see how I am and I see who I am and it's so helpful. And I'm just like learning to accept how I am more and more every day. And so I just want you to give yourself the credit, the space, the patience to just let yourself learn about yourself over time. Don't expect self-knowledge to come in some kind of flash that you would close your eyes and introspect for a moment. You have to witness your behavior, your thoughts, your feelings over years and years and years. And it slowly accumulates into a data set that you can make sense of if you pay close attention. So... If you'd like to have a philosophical coaching call with me, visit airyintheair.com. You can see on the coaching page has a scheduling link, or you can email me directly at airyintheair@gmail.com. Please become a patron on Patreon. That helps so much. This is a 100% listener-funded podcast. As little as $5 a month, you can keep the tires on this bitch. So, thanks so much. We'll see you on the next episode.